It's spring when a young man's fancy turns to thoughts of sports or sport for our English listeners. Yes, sounds like it's time for episode 78 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your I Believe in the Church of Baseball host, Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome back for the fourth time, I believe, Richard Kirkham, who has chosen as his film the Ron Shelton low-key classic Bull Durham, while I have chosen the Lindsay Anderson angry young man kitchen sink drama This Sporting Life, both films about athletes going through an existential crisis. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. But also a quick note, for those of my listeners who keep count or play close attention, you'll probably think, wait, this is episode 78 what happened to episode 77 well after trying to record the episode with filmmaker adam binish on 2001 a space odyssey and solaris and then skype failing to record twice we will be re-recording that episode out of order but i decided to keep the number 77 for it i don't know why it seemed to make sense to me in a way i can't explain or justify and my podcast isn't a democracy at any rate, to begin, Richard, why don't you remind our audience all about yourself? Sure, Howard. Thank you for having me back on the show. I am the host of the Lambcast, which is the official podcast of the Large Association of Movie Blogs. And we do a weekly podcast with a group of fellow members of our community. There are 2,000 people who are members of the LAM, but we only have maybe 100, 150 who are active on the podcast. On a weekly basis, we get four or five people together and talk about all kinds of things related to movies. Sometimes it's a new release. Sometimes it's a look back at a movie year. Sometimes it's a classic or a franchise. Who knows? You can tune in all the time and find something different and exciting on the Lambcast. I also have my own site, Kirkham A Movie A Day. I used my name so it would be easy for people who know me to find it. My policy on that one is if I saw it in a theater, you're going to read about it there. Fantastic. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Bull Durham. For some information about the film, Bull Durham is a romantic comedy sports film released in 1988. It was directed and written by Ron Shelton, partly inspired by the time he spent as a minor league baseball player. It stars Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, Trey Wilson, Robert Wool, William O'Leary, David Needorf, Jenny Robertson, Danny Gans, and Max Patkin as himself. The North Carolina Durham Bulls, a minor league A team, have a new pitching sensation, Ebby Lelouch. Well, a new sensation if he can learn to control his pitches and discipline himself. The teaching of these traits are left to the hands of Annie Savoy, a baseball enthusiast and expert who chooses one player a year to seduce and teach the ways of love and baseball as well as Crash Davis, a veteran catcher slowly passing the age of making the majors and whose only use for the Bulls is to teach on the field what Annie is teaching Ebby in the boudoir. Before starting, I thought we might broach the subject about why sports films are made. What is their appeal? I never got the idea that they were the most popular genres, though boxing probably has the most classics and is the most successful. But what is it about sports and then what is it about baseball that has this appeal? It should be noted that at the time, a baseball movie was considered pretty much a dead genre. Well, of course, in the 1980s, the appeal was Kevin Costner. He's in large part responsible for making baseball movies something that are saleable again. The idea behind a sports movie is pretty basic. There are people who are fans of sports, lots of people. The idea of seeing their sport featured in a film in an interesting way is compelling. We want to see our the sports that we love shown in an interesting way. Nothing, of course, can be as exciting and tension-filled as an actual game. If you're a fan of a football team and your team is in the championship, it's coming down to the last minute of the game. You're on defense or offense, and whatever happens is going to make the difference to who wins or loses the game. You can't replace that with a movie. 
But you also get personalities within a movie that you don't get as much detail on in the real sports. There is plenty of background stuff on players in games, and we do know some of our sports heroes, but we don't relate to the stories in the personal way in a game that we do in a movie. And the movies give us the opportunity to connect not only the sport, but the people who play the sport and maybe see ourselves a little bit in the movie as well. Well, as I said, Ron Shelton had a difficult time getting backing for it. Nobody wanted to do the movie. Orion Pictures finally gave him a $9 million budget and an eight-week shooting schedule and creative freedom. But after the success of this film, all of a sudden there were a number of baseball films made. If someone says that a genre doesn't make money, all you need is one hit, and then everyone is making them. <laughs> it's true, and if that one hit happens to be a home run, then everybody is going to be swinging for the fences. Very good. And baseball is a peculiarly... American sport, though it has its origins in the British sport of rounders, it's still synonymous with Americana. It's not the fastest moving of sports, which is why it may be in somewhat of a decline in popularity. But if you talk to some Britishers, cricket makes baseball look like a Michael Bay film. (laughs) The idea of it being a national sport, I think, has a lot more to do with the culture that it exists in, its origins, and the culture in the United States around baseball. Ball. kids in the in the states why did you choose this film we were talking about something that was going to work for this time of the season early spring of course spring training was coming up i knew the baseball season was starting so i just picked my favorite baseball film bull durham is a movie that i have probably seen two or three dozen times without even thinking hard about it it's always a summer repeat for me at some point in the summertime i'm going to be playing bull durham on my home theater i could watch bull durham any time of the year but you know when the sun is out and uh, people are out of school It's a beautiful afternoon. If you're not going to the ballpark, then you might as well be watching Annie Savoy. When did you first see it? I did see it in theaters when it opened. My wife and I went to see it, and it was one of those films that was an instant hit with her because it's also a romantic comedy, but it's a, a slightly different kind of romantic comedy where the boy and girl who are in love actually don't get together until the end of the film. The romance part, they dodge around that for a long time. Yes, usually it's boy meets girl, Boy loses girl, boy gets girl, and this it's boy meets girl, boy doesn't get girl, boy gets girl. Yeah, so the sequencing's a little bit different, and also a romantic comedy between two men as well, in the sense of the two players, Nuke and Crash. They really are antagonists at the start, but they become tentative friends in the process, although that friendship is tested a little bit, of course, by Nuke's relationship with Annie and of the fact that he has a future in baseball and Crash, it looks like his playing days are rapidly coming to a close. I also first saw it when it opened. I really liked it. I'm not into sports, so I'm definitely not in sports films. It's not one of the first genres that I rushed to the movie to see. But this was different. As you say, it's almost not even a sports film. It's a romantic comedy as well as a romance. It's very low key. It's more about all these characters that are central to it and the characters that are even at the periphery. I think probably most successful sports films are not about the sport but that's almost like any genre sci-fi film it's not so much about the sci-fi westerns are not so much about the westerns it's about the people involved and if you can get me interested in the people then the rest of it is simply fine yeah and the environment here is a little bit different i think that that's one of the things that shelton did that was really important it's minor league baseball this is not the glamour of the major leagues this is the riding on the bus all night long sleeping in the uh, crappy motel hoping that your life is going to turn around someday all of these guys are young guys for the most part but they do get cut from the team when it's not going well it's a ramshackle sort of experience that they're living and this i think is Another thing that makes Bull Durham the valuable and interesting movie that it is because it gives us insight into how people live their lives that are not the stars that we see. It's also interesting in this film, the players aren't traded. If they're no longer part of the team, they're fired. Well, for the most part, I think that's true. Although Crash does say at one point, he is, I'm the player to be named later. It's minor league, so it's not like there's going to be a huge demand for them. What are some of your favorite scenes? I have used this quote 
for years. The uh, coach, played by Trey Wilson, is trying to get the team motivated. He sees them not moving, and Crash suggests that he throws fit in the locker room and gets them out of the shower room, and he's yelling at them, and he says, you're lollygagging on the field. You're lollygagging on the first base. You know what that makes them? Lollygaggers. And I have used that line a thousand times. And then, of course, the scene where Crash has basically sold out uh, Nuke to the opposing player at the plate because Nuke is not listening to him. And Crash just tells him, here comes the fastball straight down the middle. So the guy knows that it's coming. That's a good effect. And he's putting Nuke in his place. And Annie, of course, is just so much fun every time Susan Sarandon comes on and she starts pontificating about the writers that she loves or her philosophy of baseball or even breathing out of your uh, eyelids. What do you think of the writer-director Ron Shelton? I've seen some of his other films. I've enjoyed them. The other combination that he did with Costner was Tin Cup. He's got a good sense of sport and the way it can often be used to get people's lives. He's pretty creative. I'm trying to remember some of the other films that he's done. Let me see here. There's White Men Can't Jump. That's another sports one. Blaze, Hollywood, Homicide. Yeah, obviously he's most successful in the uh, sports venue because Hollywood, Homicide, and Blaze were not successful at all. Right. They also did Cobb. But I did see a film that he did, interestingly enough, with Kurt Russell, who should have been playing baseball, called Dark Blue. That was set in the uh, LAPD era around the Rodney King time. And that was a pretty effective cop thriller. But I think he's obviously been most successful with those sports movies. Well, I've seen eight of Ron Shelton's features that he wrote and or directed. I always thought that he was a better writer than director. He's not a bad director, but it's his screenplays and characterizations that really stand out. In talking about White Men Can't Jump, critic Roger Ebert wrote that Shelton knows how his characters talk and sound and how they get into each other's minds with nonstop talking and boasting. So when people talk about Shelton, they don't usually talk about his directing. They always talk about his writing. I think both Blaze and Hollywood Homicide are very well written. I would watch them and say, oh, this is not a bad screen. Screenplay, but there was something missing from the direction that didn't take it up to the level they needed to go. As you said, he still makes movies. He's still in the game. But sometimes I think maybe he's like his character Crash Davis. He came close and played well, but never quite made it to the majors or made it only for a short period of time, like Crash made it for 21 days. Yeah, he had his 21 days in the big leagues and they started with this movie. Right. He did play minor league baseball. He did it for five years, but quit when he realized he wouldn't become a major league player. He said, I was 25. In baseball, you feel 60 if you're not in the big leagues. I didn't want to become a Crash Davis. But actually, maybe he did in a way. Well, I think that's the voice that we hear and see on the screen for sure. The screenplay came about, according to Shelton, he said that he wrote a very early script about minor league baseball. The only thing it had in common with Bull Durham was that it was about a pitcher and a catcher. That script was titled The Player to be Named Later, and only a single anecdote from that script made it into Bull Durham. And this is where it becomes something very unique. Because he said that he decided to see if a woman could tell the story. And it's not often, if ever, you see a sports story told from the viewpoint of a woman. It's interesting, too, because Annie Savoy is basically a groupie. (laughs) She's the most sophisticated groupie there is, but that's what she's doing. She's following a minor league team and she's finding a player to make her student, so to speak, her lover, but she's intimately involved with the game. She cares about the game a great deal. You're right. There is a good scene where she and Crash are at the batting cages and they're talking about the game of baseball a little bit. They're having conversations about other things. Crash and she are talking about the stance that they're taking at the plate. It's interesting because she has insight into the game. She talks like somebody who understands baseball, and I'm sure that there are lots of women who understand baseball who are never going to make it in in the major league baseball, but that doesn't mean that they don't understand it and have good insights and those kinds of things. That's why I think there's no reason that women couldn't be coaches or managers. And I think there are some women umpires in the major leagues because they understand what it is that's going on. They may not have the same strength and speed that men have that makes them a premium player. Crash says at one point, you know, the difference one hit a week is the difference between, you know, having a Hall of Fame career and being in the minor leagues. 
Well, she is often much better at coaching than the coaches are, and at yes. times even better than Crash is. And the whole movie, normally the stereotype is that only men like sports. But if you, you look at the stands, and it's just filled with women. So this idea that sports and baseball is only of interest to men really isn't true. And it's not true in real life. You'll watch a baseball game. There's going to be a lot of women in the stands. Oh, yeah. Shelton described Annie Savoy as a high priestess who could lead us into a man's world and shine a light on it. And she would be very sensual and sexual, yet she lived by her own rigorous moral code. It seemed like a character we hadn't seen before. That may be a little exaggerated, but I think to a great degree that certainly is true for sports movies. And yes, it was a different approach to women. It's not very judgmental about women's sexuality, either for her or even for Millie, her best friend, who also is a group and knows a lot about baseball as well. It doesn't really suggest that we should look down on them. That's just who they are. And it's really about the baseball perspective. It's not about being a team follower. Right. In many ways, it's a very tolerant movie. I also liked its attitude toward religion. It playfully makes fun of people who have religious beliefs. It even playfully makes fun of Annie Savoy's sort of religious beliefs. Yes. <laughs> but they're not really ridiculed. You have the blessing of the bat by the player's girlfriend. And Jimmy, who offers to lead Bible study, even though he knows that everyone's going to laugh at him. And then he marries the team groupie. Yeah, it's interesting the way some of those things play out. You know, Annie's got her own little you know, altar in her house, and so it may not be a religion that other people recognize, but it is an organized religion. She has a set of beliefs that she adheres to, and you know, the most famous segment in the uh, film is the one where Crash explains his philosophy. They put it in contrast to her point of view. This does remind me, I never really did say what my favorite scenes were, but two of them do apply here. One is when they all gather out on the mound because everybody is distracted. <laughs> yes. And one of the things they talk about is what are they going to get Jimmy and Millie as a wedding gift? Candlesticks are nice. <laughs> yes, Robert Wool comes out and apparently he improvised this based on a conversation he had with his wife. He says, well, this is what we're going to do about the wedding gift. Let's get back to playing ball. I also like it when someone says, well, wait till we tell Jimmy that Millie has had sex with almost everybody in the team and Crash says, anybody who does that, I'll break his neck. They do have a moral code. It's a little bit different, but that's perfectly fine. Their morality is really focused around the game. You know, what do they believe in? They believe in the hanging curveball. Yeah. <laughs> It does come at a time when America was in many ways no longer the country that World War II and was starting to doubt whether it was actually this beacon of light for the world. Starting with the 60s, there were so many tragedies, like all the assassinations, and we had the Vietnam War, and we had Nixon. So it started making us rethink our view of ourselves and our value at having to be number one. So now we get this rather unusual look at sports. This was the era where you won by losing, like Rock and the Bad News Bears and Casey's Shadow and later on Tin Cup. These people don't win, but they do win. They just don't come first. Yeah, I think some of that is true. I do think that one of the reasons that the baseball movies succeeded a little bit more is because we did have a, a cultural shift. You're right about the 60s and the 70s that there was this sense of doubt about the country and maybe we aren't what we are. The Reagan era went the opposite direction, tried to promote this idea that we're going in a different direction. It's morning in America. And I think that it's optimistic and that that optimism is reflected. Well, we mentioned it on the Lambcast the other day when we talked about the movie Miracle, which is a hockey movie. But I think that there's a lot of that optimism and hope in baseball, which is the American sport. I think that that might be one of the reasons that we got so many of these baseball films in the 80s, The Natural, Bull Durham, and Field of Dreams. There are a couple of others that are not popping into my head. They didn't all work, but I think they all were taking that attitude that baseball is a place where it is a field of dreams. There are possibilities. They don't always work out. The perfect example is the Bad News Bears, because instead of doing the lovable losers become the champions, the lovable losers challenge the champions and they challenge convention, even though they don't become champions themselves. Yes, they come in second, but it made them more of a winner than the winners. Yes, it's interesting that you mentioned The Natural, which was the Robert Redford baseball movie, because they changed the ending of the book. Right. Where in the original story, he does the same thing he did the previous time and blows it. In the movie, it becomes an underdog, feel-good, redemption story. And then, yes, we start getting more and more of those underdog and redemption movies and sports films 
even in the 50s, where boxing movies were very popular, they were always very downbeat. <laughs> By the time it was over, everybody lost. Nobody in the boxing world seemed to be making any money except the racketeers. <laughs> right. Uh, and this was also the time of existentialism, of course. And both Crash and Annie are going through the same existential crisis. They're beginning to realize they can't do what they're doing forever. They have to make a decision as to what is going to drive them for the rest of my lives. In the end, the choices are both practical. Crash decides to become a coach or a manager, and Annie decides to settle down with one person. But it's also also very French existential. They give up their dreams for love. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. It ties in with that existential theme that's going to be part of uh, our other film when we get yes. to it. <laughs> Very big, very big. I think there will be a lot of similarities and a lot of differences between these two movies. But basically, I think David Anson's review for Newsweek magazine may say it all. He said, the film works equally as a love story, a baseball fable, and a comedy, while ignoring the cliches of each genre. That sums it up pretty well. <laughs> Do you have a favorite performance? Tim Robbins is probably the most valuable player here because he has to play a guy who is really kind of thick and dense and sometimes unlikable. But you have to turn him into somebody that you can root for anyway. You want him to succeed and, and develop the friendship. I kind of like the way that he is a goofball who's a little naive when it comes to what he's doing with Annie. He understands Crash better than he understands Annie. And I think that's an interesting comparison. Bromance thing works a little bit better than the romance thing for him, which is why Crash and Annie end up together at the end of the film instead of a nuke. Well, there never really was a romance between Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins. It's certainly not a traditional one. They both knew that this was only going to be for a matter of time. And I do like their parting. When he says, well, I'll be back later. And she gives him this look and he realizes, yes, this Bye. is it. He's not angry or upset. He just knows. And in the background is Edith Piaf singing one of her oh, great yes. songs, No Regrets. I actually think Susan Randon gives the strongest performance, but she is the best actor of the trio. She's just one of our finer actresses. She's come a long way since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Robert Ebert praised Susan Sarandon's performance in his review for the Chicago Sun-Times. I don't know who else they could have hired to play Annie Savoy, the Sarandon character who pledges her heart and her body to one player season, but I doubt if the character would have worked without Sarandon's wonderful performance. It would not work. I've had a crush on Susan Sarandon since Rocky Horror Picture Show. I saw her in some movies before that. I think she was in Joe. It was right after Rocky Horror, Atlantic City. That was the one that turned her career around. She got yeah, a, I think. expected Oscar nomination for it. Nobody saw that. Well, someone must have seen it coming. But basically, yeah. that was she's it. got those big eyes and that classic chiseled facial structure. And she's got the wild hair. Like I said, I've had a little crush on her ever since I first saw her. And I think she's great in the movie here. I'm not really a big fan of either Kevin Costner or Tim Robbins. I'll take Kevin Costner over Robbins, though. I hear he gives one of his best performances. He seems to have an instinct for the role. It seems to have awakened something inside him. I don't think he's a bad actor. I just don't think there's anything special. Tim Robbins almost never convinces me, to be honest. I've never bought his performances. Well, I think in this role, it's easy to buy. It's written in a way that allows him to be a caricature of a baseball player and get away with it. He does that pretty efficiently. And I've seen him in other movies where he's been fine, and I don't know that I would necessarily call him my favorite in this group. I'm a Costner fan, and like I said, I've just admitted my love for Susan Sarandon. But of the three in this film, he's the one that I think people will enjoy the most. It's got to do with the roles that they're playing. Crash and Annie are both more traditional characters. Nuke's the flashy character. He's not our main character. He's not our main hero, but he's going to draw a lot of attention. Well, Shelton cast Costner because of the actor's natural athleticism. athleticism yes. <laughs> you did mention Kurt Russell, who was in on the early creation of the story. Kurt Russell also played baseball when he was young. I don't know why he eventually didn't do the movie. And Costner was a bigger star. And Costner was also a former high school baseball player. He actually hit two home runs while the cameras were rolling. The original choice and who the studio wanted for the Tim Robbins role was Anthony Michael Hall. And Shelton threatened to quit if they cast him. 
I suspect by this time, Hall really wasn't the nerd from Sixteen Candles. He'd become this very unlikable, vain character. And you can't have an unlikable, vain actor play a vain character and have the people like him. You need someone like Tim Robbins, who is essentially a very likable person. So since there's something very likable about him playing this vain, naive, clueless at times, it's easier to accept him because there is something about him that offsets that that makes him more watchable. I don't think Hall could do that by this time. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's an interesting idea. I understand why they might think that that would have been a good choice, but I think that they made the right choice here. The cinematographer was by Bobby Byrne. This was probably his best movie. His other notable films are Sixteen Candles and Blue Collar, but he never became more than what I would call a working cinematographer. But one of the things I liked about this is I feel like he really captures the feel for a small town, just the way it is shot. I really got the feeling of this town that is sort of in the middle. It's no longer big. It's no longer small. It's just sort of in between. Part of it is also the screenwriting. I like the idea that we're getting some behind-the-scenes stuff about the team because we see the fans in the stands, and they know the players. It's not just that they like the players and come out and uh, watch them. They know them from the bar that they hang out in, or they see them on the streets in the pool hall. There's a little bit of that kind of thing. And I like the way that they fake out the uh, live play-by-play on the radio for the (laughs) hometown fans when they're playing an away game because they're not traveling the radio crew so they have to fake it with the sound effects to make it sound like it's an actual game that was a very fun scene but with that here's some more information about the movie bull durham grossed five million dollars its opening weekend then went on to gross a total of 50.8 million in north america well above its estimated nine million budget It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay for the Academy Awards. This was the year of Rain Man. But it won Best Screenplay by the WGA, the LA Film Critics, the National Society of Film Critics, and the New York Film Critics Circle. According to a Los Angeles Times poll of 100 film critics, Bull Durham was the second most acclaimed film of 1988, second only to the documentary The Thin Blue Line. In 2003, Sports Illustrated ranked Bull Durham as the greatest sports movie. Although Kevin Costner plays the older, more experienced ball player in real life, he's only three years older than Tim Robbins, 33 and 30, respectively, during filming. And Susan Sarandon was actually 42. Max Patkin, who is the clown in the movie, who does all those incredible athletic turns, dances on the mound, is the real Max Patkin. He was known as the clown prince of baseball. In 2003, a 15th anniversary of Bull Durham at the National Baseball Hall of Fame was canceled by Hall of Fame President Dale Petrosky. Petrosky, who was on the White House staff during the Reagan administration, told Robbins that the actor's public opposition to the U.S.-led war in Iraq helped to undermine the U.S. position, which could put our troops in even more danger. The Bull billboard offering a free stake if it gets tagged by home run was created for the film, but the team kept it. And today, if a player hits the ball on the fly with home run, he wins a free stake from a local restaurant. And if the player hits the grass that the bull stands on, he wins a free salad. The film's name is based on the nickname for Durham, North Carolina. In 1874, W.T. Blackwell and Company named its product Bull Durham Tobacco. The line, The Road of Excess Leads to the Palace of Wisdom, is from William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And let's have some fun with names. The character of Nuke Lelouch is loosely based on Steve Tukowski, a baseball player. Shelton came up with the name Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch after being served in a restaurant by a waiter named Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch. Lelouch is also Latin for having poor eyesight. And one could also think of Ebby as meaning ebb and flow, which is what Ebby does during the film. Costner's character name was taken from another baseball player, Lawrence Columbus Crash Davis. But you could say that Davis is crashing now. And Lawrence means bright one. So is someone bringing light to someone having poor eyesight? And of course, Annie Savoy's name was a combination of the nickname Annie's that baseball player give to their groupies. And it's the name of a bar. But the Savoy is also a region of southeast France. And she's big on France that is known for its cabbages with crinkled leaves and compact head. And you can do with that what you want. But with that, let's get to my selection, and that is This Sporting Life. First, some information about the film. This Sporting Life is a British angry young man kitchen sink drama released in 1963. It was directed by Lindsay Anderson and written by David Story, based on his novel of the same name, published in 1960. It stars Richard Harris, Rachel Roberts, Alan Battle, William Hartnell, Colin Blakely, Vanda Godsell, Anne Cunningham, Jack Watson, Arthur Lowe, George Sewell, and Leonard Rossiter. Frank Manchin, a minor in Yorkshire 
Hampshire, manages to get a tryout with the local rugby team. He quickly shows he can be a major player, but his life is complicated by conflicts with the owners of the team, but more importantly, over the love he has for his landlady, a widow who can't return his feelings and is frightened of his brutality. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? Well, it's an interesting one because it's really about players in a sport and not really about the sport. It's it's the game is secondary to the characters and experiences that they're going through. It's a lot clearer from my perspective what the heck is going on in Bull Durham than uh, what's going on in this sporting life. I'm not familiar with the rules of rugby, so when there's some punching going on, I'm going, is that okay? Is this like hockey where you're allowed to do that sort of thing, or is it one of those things that they're supposed to be doing behind the scenes and it's just one of those little bit of extras obviously the relationships between the two leads the female lead and the male lead in the film are very different in the two films but that is one of the reasons that you wanted to have movies to compare with it makes for a good contrast you mentioned is this punching something that's okay like in hockey well in hockey it's not okay they just get away with it and depending on the game or the umpires whether people get punished for it or not varies and it's the same here the punching is supposed to be punished in some ways but it is a very brutal game though in many ways not as brutal as football even though it seems more brutal But they're both very authentic. The screenwriters base their stories on their own experiences. David Story did play rugby, and I think it helped him pay for college. As you say, they're both more about the characters. They're both character studies, even down to the sporting characters. Both of them have this really rich array of supporting characters that really come to life. And then, as we'll talk about, these are both about characters that have trouble defining themselves. They're in existential crises. One is very brutal, and the other is more cerebral, but they're both going through these internal conflicts. So I suspect you saw the film recently. Yes, I did. I'd heard of it for years and years, and I knew it would fit into this category of, as they say, angry young men film from the UK in the 60s and 70s, kitchen sink dramas. And I can see exactly why they call it that kind of film genre, because basically the opening scenes with Richard Harris, well, at least in the flashback scenes, take place in this what is a house or an apartment that he is sharing with this woman. And most of their interaction takes place in the kitchen, around the kitchen sink. And he is an angry young man. And like I said, it's a little bit different for me coming on to it. I think I saw another film featuring rugby. I saw Invictus, the Clint Eastwood film with Matt Damon. Although it's got rugby at its center, it's really more uh, about the political reconciliation that was taking place in South Africa. The local team aspect, I think that's another thing that pairs it well with the movie that we were just talking about. I don't know what the leagues are like in Great Britain. I don't know that rugby is on the same level as baseball would be here. I know it's certainly not on the same level as soccer or football, and the club leagues are a little bit different, but this seems like it's a town team that's managed by a board of directors that is headed by the guy who owns the company that the widow's husband worked for. The fact that it's a local team, that it's controlled by the local gentry, so to speak, is one of the things that makes it interesting and comparable to a Bull Durham because we're looking at something that this is not the big time. Although Richard Harris's character, Frank, you know, demands to be paid like a big time player. It certainly feels like it's big time when he is able to buy a car. It's a little unfamiliar to me exactly how it fits in, but I was interested in the story. It's certainly a different tone that we're looking at. You know, there's a romance here, but it's not a charming romance. It's, it doesn't have a happy ending. Sometimes I'm questioning talk about existential doubts. I don't understand why Frank is pursuing somebody who is so adamant about refusing him and being opposed to having a relationship with him. And I'm not sure what the attraction was. I thought the actress was excellent, though. I do think this is a major league rugby team, not a minor league one like in Bull Durham. I could be wrong. Well, certainly they were drawing more crowds. Yes. I saw it after it came out. I didn't see it when it was in the movie theater. Probably saw it on television, but I may have not seen it until I was in college and maybe I saw it on the big screen. I remember liking it very much, though today, before I saw it again, I didn't remember that much about it. 
upon rewatching it, I think it works very well in spite of some problematical scenes. And you may have a point about Frank. I didn't really have the problem you did, but I'm not sure I can argue with it. And we'll probably talk about that more later. Do you have some favorite scenes? Let's face it, I'm a bit of a sentimentalist, and I like the scene where he took his uh, landlady, who he basically turns into his kept woman, and her kids out for a picnic. He's playing with the kids, and he's trying to create a warm relationship with the kids and the family, juxtaposed at the end of the film, where we don't really get that connection anymore. But at that moment, I would have seen, if I had been in a relationship like that, that there's somebody who's trying to make an effort to be a person that I could be in love with there's a person that i could connect with so i like the scenes with the kids i think that is a very interesting scene because frank matchins does seem to be two different people he's this brutal character who wants not to be so brutal he wants to get away from working class existence of being a minor and it's m-i-n-e-r not being someone underage But he does it in two ways, one by entering an even perhaps more brutal arena with rugby, but also by seeing if he can fall in love and see if he can be someone who isn't brutal. And he has these two conflicts going on inside of him. So that is a very nice scene. There are these scenes where suddenly he becomes very gentle and very sweet and you see what he could become. The problem is, can he? One of my favorite scenes, or perhaps my favorite scene is the restaurant scene. This is actually the only scene that I remembered from when I originally saw it, when he takes the landlady, the widow that he's in love with, out to a very nice, what the British would say, posh restaurant. And he can't fit in. He can't let go of his brutal nature and ruins the evening. In fact, that is the scene where that's it. Any hope that he had of wooing the landlady goes out the window. I also like the scene where he socks his own team member because the team member wouldn't pass him the ball. Yeah, that happens early in the film, and he's trying to establish, hey, I'm a player here. It's like you said, it's a brutal game. One point toward the end, he's talking with the wife of the team owner. He says there aren't any stars in rugby. He doesn't quite say it's a team thing, but he is suggesting that it's really about you know having this common goal. That's what a scrum is. You don't have one person who's the, the primary focus. You've got 20 people in on top of each other going through. And sometimes people break out, and they do have moments of... Flash, and that's clearly why he is seen as being valuable. The idea that he has trouble fitting in, see, that was one of the things that I thought was a little problematic because he does do some things that suggest that he has some understanding of what would be the proper behavior and actions in a different class. I mean, the fact that he resists the team owner's wife's advances seems to suggest he says, this just isn't right. This isn't something that I should be doing. I've kind of made this commitment to this other woman. He's very iffy about all all that. And he seems to understand the proper things about tea. On the other hand, he's in this restaurant and he puts his feet up on the other chair and he's leaning back. And I'm going, this feels like a character who's going out of his way to antagonize people in this environment. I thought that that was a strange change in his character. Well, I think you have a point. If you can accept this dichotomy in his character and that he keeps going back and forth and he doesn't have full control over what he's trying to do, then the character is probably going to work more for you than if you just see him acting two different ways and you can't reconcile the two. So that's probably one of the things that will make a difference as to how you enjoy the film and how you look at the film. But it is interesting that when he socks his own team member who won't passing the ball, and because of that, they're not making goals. And then he gets the other team member blamed for it and gets the other team cut as well because his team member now can't play because his nose is broken. When he does get the ball, he does pass it to a team member and that person makes the goal and he actually gets the credit for it. Yeah, he's trying to do the right thing on the field. And I think he's trying to do the right thing in his romantic life. He takes shortcuts in both. And I think that is the thing about his character that maybe is the shortcoming. Have you seen many Lindy Anderson films? I went and looked. There aren't and I that said, many to see. <laughs> I, I did see one that I thought was kind of interesting. I saw it when it came out, The Whales of August. Yes, that was. Betty Davis's last film, I think. Right. And his next to last film. I think he made a mockumentary after that. 
that one. Somewhere I'm going, how did he ever end up directing this? Because it's yeah, probably that seems very strange. I've not seen very many. As I said, he, he didn't make very many feature films. He made a lot of documentaries as well and a lot of short documentaries. He won an Oscar for his short Thursday's Children in 1944. He was one of the founders of the free cinema movement, and that's the movement where they thought the documentary should issue propaganda and commercial appeal, be more honest, not try to say anything, but just reflect things as they are. He's also one of the founders of the British New Wave, or what we would also call the angry young man catching sink drama, that emphasized a more realistic and authentic look at England, that especially focused on working class and lower class characters. He started out as a film critic, eventually ended up writing for Sight and Sound, and the left-leaning The New Statesman. He was, at times, I couldn't say communist, but he was certainly part of the far left. But his films generally got mixed reviews and were not commercially successful. And today he's best remembered for a trilogy of films, the Mick Travis trilogy, starring Malcolm McDowell, especially the first one, If, about goings-on at a British boarding school, followed by Oh Lucky Man, which Pop Art will be covering soon. We've paired that with the Steve Martin film, The Jerk, both picturesque films, and then the last one was Britannia Hospital. But he really made very few films overall. Oh Lucky Man is one that I saw on video. It was like 1983, and I think I rented it because I was a fan of Clockwork Orange and Malcolm McDowell was in it. I have virtually no memory of it whatsoever, but I know I saw it because I remember renting it. By the way, Malcolm McDowell has a documentary, which is basically a one-man show, where he speaks about his relationship with Lindsay Anderson, and that's available on YouTube. It's called Never Apologize, and I have seen that. What does he say about Lindsay Anderson? Oh, he tells stories about Lindsay Anderson basically giving him his break, how he helped him out when they were at Cannes Film Festival and he had no money but Lindsay Anderson would lend him some money how he talked his way into making Oh Lucky Man with Lindsay Anderson he wanted to make more films with him it's a Rankin-Tier kind of documentary there are a few bits of film clips placed in the documentary I saw Malcolm McDowell talk about movies at a screening at the Egyptian for the American Cinematique maybe three or four years ago he was there talking about two of his films that were not Lindsay Anderson films but he did talk about about Lindsay Anderson for a half an hour, and that's when I found out about this video. This Born Life is probably Lindsay Anderson's best movie overall, possibly, and we'll get to this later because of David Story's screenplay. The other films are interesting, but they don't have the greatest of screenplays. Variety praised the movie's gutsy vitality and said that Anderson brings the king observant eye of a documentary man to many vivid episodes without sacrificing the storyline. So the movie does have a very documentary look, and that was his expertise, and it really does look interesting. Gavin Lambert, who writes books about the industry, wrote a memoir, mainly about Lindsay Anderson, in which he wrote that Anderson repressed his homosexuality. And a lot of people got upset with him for doing that. And in November 2006, Malcolm McDowell told The Independent, I know that he was in love with Richard Harris, the star of Anderson's first feature, This Morning Life. I am sure that it was the same with me and Albert Finney and the rest. It wasn't a physical thing, but I suppose he always fell in love with this leading man. He would always pick someone who was unattainable because he was heterosexual. That's basically Malcolm McDowell saying, yes, he was a repressed gay man who made sure that he chose straight men to be his leads because he knew that nothing would ever come of it. Yeah, there's a little bit of discussion of that in that documentary, too. And then David Story wrote the screenplay. I know that it's written from the perspective of somebody who was involved in rugby and who played the game, basically lived a life similar to what we're seeing here. The structure of the story is a little bit odd at the beginning because it does do this flashback sequencing. And it was a little confusing, even though the absence of his teeth should be a tip off as to where we are in the time sequencing on this. We do jump back and forth a little bit on it. And it took me a while to catch up with that. Once that was in the background, I thought it was much more straightforward. But for the first third of the movie, the story structure was throwing me off. The characters felt very honest and real. I understand that Margaret, the woman who is the landlady that he is developing this relationship with, that she is damaged in some way. Obviously, the widowhood, two kids, the thought that her husband's death might have been a suicide puts her in a very fragile situation. The health issue seems to show up a little 
little bit out of nowhere. That seemed a little surprising to me. I, th- I don't know why that was necessary. It just feels like it was a convenient way to exit that story instead of being uh, more honest about just the fact that this was a relationship that she couldn't live with, she couldn't accept. That felt to me like a contrivance at the end. The rest of it is very much, you know, fly on the wall. We're watching people who are doing interesting things, going through their lives, making decisions. We don't always understand those decisions. There's another one of those things that maybe is harder for me to relate to because of a culture clash. There is some classism that goes on in uh, this world. We have some economic divides in this culture, but they are not anywhere near the kinds of divisions that people have in Great Britain. You got the wrong accent and you're an outcast in some circle. And this is one of those places where I think that being from that world, that would make a little bit more sense as to why it is difficult for Frank to go between being the hero that everybody on the team respects and likes to being somebody that they act properly toward him, but they don't really embrace him. Nobody seems to try to understand him except one other guy on the team. And the old man. That was another one of those things that was a little bit odd. The old man that he calls dad for the first half. First, I thought, well, maybe it is his dad. And then there's actually a point where he explains he just calls him that because he's always around and he's an older guy. You mentioned the structure, and it is an unusual structure. It's almost Christopher Nolan-like, because one through line is a single day, and that's when he gets injured and loses his teeth and needs to get them replaced, needs uh, dentures, plus the Christmas party that night. The other cuts to his history of how he rose as rugby player. They seem to intersect on Christmas Eve, and then the story proceeds as one from that point. So it is very unusual. You probably won't see any other movie quite structured like that. And it's not until perhaps in the last 20 years with Tarantino and others that we get these kind of odd structures. The film is an example about the kitchen sink and angry young men movements in British art. It was about people disillusioned with the world around them, especially the class conflict, where the working class had little money and resources. This was not really that long after World War II, which ended in 45, but it's also even a shorter period when rationing stopped. The rationing of World War II continued actually until 1954. And finally, there was such a great outcry that finally they ended rationing. But this younger generation who grew up in World War II and this rationing and this deprivation, they saw that something was wrong. And you're right about the class conflicts. Owners had everything and they had nothing. But before this, British movies were often escapists. The theaters filled with well-made plays by writers like Noel Coward and Somerset Mom. When Laurence Olivier took Arthur Miller to see Look Back in Anger, and Miller loved it, Olivier saw the writing on the wall. He saw that there was a change in the air, and he asked if the writer John Osborne had anything for him. And Osborne did. He had The Entertainer. Olivier revived his career by siding with this angry young men theater and started doing uh, works by them and being directed by them. It's also an example of what I call the existential antihero, in which an essentially unlikable and unsympathetic central character is going through an existential crisis, trying to come to terms with who he is, how does he fit in the world. And this precedes such films as Get Carter, Taxi Driver, and Raging Bull. The latter two, for me, are sometimes reminiscent of the sporting life. I know that Scorsese saw everything, so he must have seen this movie. How much influence it had on him, I don't know. But in both Taxi Driver and The Sporting Life, there are these disastrous states because the central character can't renounce his essential nature. You know, Taxi Driver takes Sybil Shepherd to this very right. movie. And the brutality of Raging Bull can be seen in Frank Matron's characters. I can believe that it didn't have some influence, not only on this movement of the existential antihero, but on movies that came after, especially Scorsese. I think if you were looking at movies, certainly for the antihero part, uh, but if you were talking about the kitchen sink kind of film, Mean Streets would maybe fit into that classification even more, because it's really about that level of character in the organization or the world that they are operating in. In Mean Streets, it's crime that we're dealing with, organized crime world rather than rugby. But the level of people that we're looking at are really the foot soldier kind of thing. You know, some of them aren't even that far up in the hierarchy, so to speak. There's a good way to make the comparison there to, yeah, but I'm sure that Scorsese is influenced by these films because for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. David 
Story, who wrote the screenplay. He was actually better known as a novelist and a playwright. He wrote intensely realistic stories, almost naturalistic. Sometimes they didn't have a plot. His most celebrated play was probably The Changing Room, which I saw on Broadway in the 70s. It really influenced me with its raw reality. There is no plot. Some rugby players enter locker room or what they call changing room in Britain. They change into their rugby clothes. They joke around. They do everything you do in the locker room. Then they go out to play. Then one of them gets seriously injured with a nose injury. He's brought back in and taken care of and taken off. And then they come in after the game and they shower, they get dressed, they sing a song and leave. That's it. There is no plot. (laughs) But I had never seen anything like it. And John Lithgow was the player who was injured. He won the Tony for it. And I do have this odd memory of it because I went with some college people. We were at the matinee and there were all these older women around us. And I was thinking, I wonder how they're going to handle the nudity. Then they stripped completely naked, and I thought, oh, that's how they're going to handle it. <laughs> and these older women just didn't back an eye. But from Texas, we hadn't quite gotten that far in what you can do on stage. But this was the kind of thing he wrote. He wrote very realistic, very naturalistic stories. He won the Booker Prize, which is like our Pulitzer Prize. He was a well-respected writer. There are some aspects of the film that are problematic, mainly in the relationship between Machen and his landlady that he is in love with. Today, what he does to her, we would just generally consider rape. But in the movie, it's more looked at as a complex relationship. And he also hits her. But the way the movie is written, it's more his pain that is important, not hers. The sympathy more goes to him. At least, I think that's how it would be seen at the time it was made. Well, yeah, it's his face that we focus on after he strikes her, not hers. And what would certainly be classified as rape today would probably be seen as an aggressive seduction scene in those days with the character that she represents because she is so damaged and resistant to anything, feels a little bit like the way that this is the only way that he can get through to her. But we certainly would not see it as being a healthy relationship. That is certainly true. Of course, there's the acting. You said you liked Rachel Roberts. How did you feel about the acting overall? Well, I think everybody is solid. Richard Harris, of course, is a standout in this. He's the star, and he's got a lot of screen presence from the very beginning. You can pick him out in the scrum. You get a good sense of his intensity. There's some tentativeness, but there's also some fierceness in his performance. I think that it's interesting that the character Margaret, who's his landlady, refers to him as a great ape, and sometimes he's moving around like that. There's a a scene at the end where he's basically hanging on a what I think is like the curtain rod in the apartment that they occupied. It's almost like the chimpanzee in the zoo. He's very physical in the part. So I thought that that was good. The other actor that I recognize, Colin Blakely, he was fine. He always plays kind of a, I don't want to say milquetoast character, but definitely a quieter character. Well, Richard Harris was a rugby player as well. I've never been that big a fan of Richard Harris, but there are a couple of performances of his I like, and I think this is his best performance. He was one of those hard-living, hard-drinking, self-destructive, new wave working-class actors like Albert Finney, Peter O'Toole, and Richard Burton that more people are surprised they lived as long as they did, actually. For those of you who don't know who Richard Harris is, look at the first two Harry Potter films, and you'll recognize him quickly. Rachel Roberts also drank a lot and suffered from depression. She was one of Britain's more respected actors, especially on the stage, and people might have seen her in the original Murder on the Orient Express. She plays, I think, the Princess Strago. But I think, like Bull Durham, it has this rich cast of supporting characters that are very well defined, very well acted. And you talk about Richard Harris being like an ape or a monkey, and Machen is a kind of monkey. So, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think the cinematographer for me is incredible, that black and white cinematography by Dennis Koop. He started out in new wave films like A Kind of Loving, Billy Liar, and Bunny Lake is Missing. He received a special Academy Award for the special effects for Superman, but he's considered one of the best black and white cinematographers of his generation. But outside of these early films, he's not really known for anything. And that's one of the interesting things about some of these kitchen sink, angry young man, new wave directors. Once that period ended, once that style of filmmaking was over, a lot of them had trouble coming up with something new. And I think a lot of their careers faltered after this. But it is a beautifully shot movie. No, it looks great. There was a period of time when people still made films in black and white. 
it wasn't a special decision that they were making. It was a choice that they made, but half the films that were being made were in black and white and half were in color. A color thing became one of the selling points early on when you were trying to compete with television. All television was black and white, and that made perfect sense that, well, we can still operate in this milieu, but by the mid-60s, that started to disappear, and black and white films are still made, but they are much more rare. I don't know that people appreciate that the work that a cinematographer has to do to make a black and white film work. It's a different kind of lighting that you have to do. At the time, it was much more difficult to do color than black and white. Right. Today, it's much more difficult to it's do the opposite. than <laughs> color. A lot of the credit of the movie is given to Peter Taylor, who did the editing. And Anthony Sloman, a producer and screenwriter, wrote that by 1963, the British New Wave had beached and Peter Taylor edited The Spur of the Sporting Life, the debut feature of the Sine literate director Lindsay Anderson. It is a remarkable study of working class angst with a cutting style like no other British feature before it, an ever underrated achievement by Taylor, as Anderson received all the credit, as directors do. The Sporting Life remains with the Bridge on the River Kwai, the supreme testament to Peter Taylor's craft and talent. From the start, Lindsay Anderson and his editor Peter Taylor show a determination to pursue a flashback narrative using bold cut transitions. Cut transitions like these plangent and understated images together in a way that seems to demand that their meanings be understood. It is an important statement of the way that image-driven filmmaker engages the spectator. And the music, it should be noted, features the second and last film score to be composed by Roberto Gerhardt, who is a classical composer, especially of Spanish themes. Lindsay Anderson cut out a great deal of Gerhardt's music against his wishes, enraging the composer, who refused to work in film music ever again. My first note on the film when I was uh, watching it was that the music over the titles makes it feel like a horror film. It is the kind of music, very discordant, very atonal. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It cost £230,000 to make. I don't know how much it made, but IMDb said that it was not a box office hit, but it made Richard Harris a star. It was nominated for Best Actor and Actress at the Oscars. This was the year of Cindy Poitier and Patricia Neal. Roberts won Best British Actress at the BAFTAs. It was nominated for Best Actor, Best British Screenplay, and Best Film from any source there as well. Harris won Best Actor at Cannes, and the movie was nominated for the Palme d'Or. But this was the year of the Leopard, and there's not much you can do about beating that film. That's one of the greatest films ever made. Among the supporting cast is William Hartnell, who shortly afterwards began his role as Doctor Who. Actually, it's because of this that he got brought to the attention of the Doctor Who producer Verity Lamberts. The film also features Arthur Lowe, later to star in Dad's Army, a huge, long-running British comedy. And he appeared in four later films directed by Anderson. IMDb lists this film as Edward Fox's film debut, but if you and I remember, he was actually in The Loneliness of the Long Distance Run a year before which we too covered on Pop Art. He was uncredited in both. And apparently, as I read, Glenda Jackson appears briefly in the group singing around the piano at the Christmas party. I didn't see her, but that's what I understand. <laughs> with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that would interest our audience. I picked three. I picked two because they have this existential hero to them. And then I picked one that is about the baseball world. Some of the same kinds of themes, but in a different milieu. The two films with the existential heroes in them, one's an obvious one, Cool Hand Luke, which is one of my favorite films where Paul Newman's character is basically a loner and independent uh, that other people kind of relate to, but he just does things his own way. From the very beginning, we know that he's iconoclastic, and that's why he ends up in the prison camp in the first place, and he's just not going to give in to the way anybody else thinks things should be. And of course, it features uh, my favorite character actor, uh, Strother Martin, who is one of the features on a project that I continue to work on, the Strother Martin Film Project. A more contemporary example of this, a character who's decided to create his own personality, make his way, is a movie from last year, Free Guy, with Ryan Reynolds where he is basically a non-playing character in a video game and he's kind of rebelling against that in the movie. He's he's decided that he's going to be a character that plays. He's going to be engaged in the process. And it's an interesting concept about what makes a personality, what makes a life. 
The baseball film that I want to recommend to people is Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, which is a terrific entertainment, but it also deals with small-time baseball on the margins. It's about the Negro Leagues as opposed to the minor leagues. It's a comedy, but it also has some serious elements to it. And it's got Billy D. Williams, James Earl Jones, Richard Pryor in it. And it's directed by John Badham, who went on to do Saturday Night Fever. Great. Well, my choices are a few maybe lesser known or seen angry young men kitchen sink dramas. The first is A Taste of Honey, Tony Richardson's 1961 drama with Rita Tushingham as an unmarried pregnant teen who's deserted by her mother when her mother remarries, leaving her only help, her gay next door neighbor. This is one of the few early sympathetic and non-judgment portrayals of a gay character far ahead of how they were being portrayed in the U.S., Similarly, for 1962, we have Brian Forbes' The L-Shaped Room, in which a signal pregnant woman moves into a boarding house and is taken under the wing by her gay next-door neighbor. She also has an affair with an aspiring writer. Leslie Crone received an Oscar nomination for a performance and received quite a few awards, including the BAFTA for it. And then again with Brian Forbes, we have 1967's The Whisperers, with Edith Evans, about an elderly woman living on her own, barely making it on government assistance. When she find some stolen money, she is quickly victimized. Edith Evans was nominated for the Oscar, did not win, but she won just about every other award in the world. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? I'm getting ready for Lambcast upcoming episodes. We uh, just finished one on a uh, look back on 2004 and some films that. there, and <laughs> you were a guest on that. I'm just putting together my list of things to do for May and June, and I think we're going to do another look back on the year 1969, so that'll be coming up probably at the end of May. I'm in the middle of doing two films that are fairly recent films. Like I said, my site, I focus on what I've seen in a theater. I occasionally do special programming where I go back and do like a little film festival of previous films. Uh, But if I see it in a theater, I make a point of having a post on it on my site. So I did Deathly Hallows Part 1, and next week will be Deathly Hallows Part 2. So when you finally hear this, probably both posts will be up. And I think that the Harry Potter series has managed to accomplish something that's very admirable, keeping a cast like that together over a period of 10 years, making eight movies together, keeping in the consistency. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of Screenplay Reader, and I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode is still uh, with podcaster and film enthusiast Nick Rehack, where we discuss two movies about haunted hotels, The Shining and The Innkeepers. They check in, but will they check out? This is because, as I said in the opening, the conversation about 2001 A Space Odyssey and Solaris with filmmaker Adam Benish will be re-recorded and uploaded in the near future. The next episode will be with filmmaker Nicole Jones-Dean, where we'll be discuss Jacob's Ladder and A Matter of Life and Death, two films about someone caught between life and death. So with that, Richard, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Thank you, Howard. It's always a pleasure seeing a movie that I haven't seen before and getting to talk about a film that I love. And your show is always giving me that opportunity, and I really appreciate that. (laughs) 